I wasn't trying to escape. I just needed water. Good morning. morning. Happy Father's Day to all you fathers. Good morning, Tavon. To you men who don't have any children but serve as fathers, happy Father's Day. And to you who we come to way too often, happy Father's Day. Uh, I love being a dad. Uh, As you saw, my two children constantly have me on my toes. Uh, But I'm loving playing with them and learning their unique personalities and getting to know them. And what's funny is, if you're a dad, this has probably happened to you too. I'm hearing my own father in my voice with the things that I say and the way that I say them. These deeply embedded phrases inside of me just come out magically. Um, And one of those phrases is this, you can't have your cake and eat it too. How many of you have ever heard that before? Mm Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I always thought it was dumb. And now as a father, you know what I realize? It's still dumb. But what does it actually mean? What does you can't have your cake and eat it too mean? It means that you can't retain the product and consume it at the same time. It's a play on the word have, meaning that you can't eat it and possess it. There are similar versions of this proverb. Other idioms like it are you can't swim and not get wet. You can't have one without the other. I looked up some of these culturally, and in India, they say you can't have a mustache and drink the porridge. And we as parents, we say these things, our moms and dads, we say these things to our children, and rightfully so. We say things like, you can't have dessert until you finish your dinner. You can't have your toys until you clean up your room. The other day I said to Nora, you can't read a book and have me read a book at the same time. You see, there's a process for our enjoyment. We can't just do some things without doing other things. You can't drive without the license. You can't get paid without doing work. You can't have results without effort. Because it would be silly to expect something like a body that's in shape without doing exercise. It just wouldn't make sense. Yet a lot of people think this way. You can't expect a clean house without tidying it up. It's just not logical. And there's just two verses we're going to look at today in the book of Isaiah that that speak to the fact that we often expect one thing from God without the other. We We ask this one thing all the time, but we don't do the one thing that comes before it. And like we said, there's a process in our, in our physical life for enjoyment. If there's a process in the physical life, there's got to be a process in the spiritual life as well. So as you open up to the book of Isaiah, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we, uh, we just pause and we come with arms open to receive what we don't have. We don't come merely to affirm what we already believe, but to tear apart a faulty foundation that we've made and to build our lives around you and your truth. Help us understand what you're saying this morning. In your name, amen. I went down a long rabbit hole of remembering these old phrases that used to be said to me, and one of them that I heard often, specifically with music, but I heard it often, was garbage in, garbage out. And that one just means that if you let something negative into your life, be sure that there will be a negative output. It's pretty self-explanatory. Eat McDonald's, you know. 
And it's somewhat of a biblical principle that we see throughout stories in the Old Testament. From the books of Deuteronomy through Malachi, even into the New Testament, we're given glimpses of different cities in the Bible. And cities were fortified walls with towers. And this four-letter word that we often overlook, the gate. It says it often, Lot was sitting at the gates of Sodom. The man in Acts was brought to the beautiful gate. Now David was sitting between the two gates. Boaz went up and sat at the gate. And we don't think of gates the same way that the authors of the Bible did because we don't have cities the same way that they did. But the gate was not a white picket fence. It was often a complex and huge structure. It was the entrance into the city. It consisted of an outer wall, an inner wall, and a space in between. And sometimes it was just a corridor of recessed guard rooms, but other times it was this giant massive courtyard. So when you read in the Bible and it says within the gates, that's what it's talking about, this, this massive courtyard. And a few things would happen in the gate. People would buy and sell things. Justice would be served by judges. There would be court held within the gate. And negotiations would be held between enemies. It happened at the gate. The fate of a city could be determined by what happened at the gate. Countless families did not need to suffer a massive war if a negotiation could be met within the gate. You see, the gate was the crux that decided the outcome for the city. And there's a gate in your life and mine, a space where we decide what will come in and what will not. What issues will we negotiate with? What relationships will I entertain? What will I allow into my gate? And the gate is the realm of our thoughts and our decisions. It's the space between what you hear and what you do. And that's where the battle happens, within the gate. And when we have a battle at our gate, whether that's a physical battle, a spiritual battle, or an emotional battle, we usually ask the same thing from God. We say, God, give me strength. Very good. So let's look at our two verses. Isaiah 28, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. I'm reading from the NIV. It says, In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. So we need some context for what we just read. Because if we just cherry-pick Bible verses and apply them, it doesn't, doesn't work like that. So Isaiah the prophet is prophesying in chapter 28 here, and he's addressing the Jewish nation. He's calling out the destruction of Ephraim, which is one of the tribes of, of the nation of Israel. He's calling them out for their pride, their, uh, their sensuality, the fact that they are connected with Egypt. The foolishness of Judah, they're rebuked for their drunkenness. And the problem is that the leaders of Israel have lowered the standard, and by lowering the standard, it's left the people vulnerable. This, of course, has no relevance to our modern day because the Bible is an outdated book. Wink, wink. And in the middle of this pretty sharp rebuke, we see these two verses, 
verses 5 and 6, and they almost seem out of context, but if you look at it within the grand scheme of things, it's beautifully positioned. Let's look at verse 5. In that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. What is a wreath and what is a remnant? The image of a wreath shows up often in the Bible. It's in Exodus, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Proverbs, Matthew, Mark, John, 1 Thessalonians, and Revelation, among other places. And the wreath symbolizes victory. It traces back to Greek mythology, Roman conquest, and it is the most recognizable symbol for triumph. Even when Jesus is on the way to the, to the cross, when they give him a crown of thorns, that's a mock wreath for his victory. And God here in Isaiah is speaking victory to those who are about to experience defeat. He says that he will be victory. He will be a wreath for the remnant. Now, remnant is a common word with maybe an uncommon definition. Many people just think that remnant means what's left over. Remnant does mean what's left over, but it's within the context of what's left over after a catastrophe, after a defeat. And church, God always has a remnant. God always has a remnant. No matter how wicked this world gets, no matter how corrupt this earth becomes, God always has a remnant. Whether that's 300 people with Gideon or a, a small boy with some bread and fish, God always has a remnant. In every office, every school, every church, every nation, there's always a remnant. And we need to take heart and comfort in that fact that our God still speaks to his people, no matter how dark this place gets. That he is our victory. He is our wreath. So then he continues in verse 6. He says, He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Now God says here in Isaiah that he will be a source of strength for those who turn back the battle at the gate. So first he says he's going to be our victory, our wreath. But then who does he say will be the source of that strength? He. He will be the source of our strength. And that is a wonderful, powerful truth that we need to hold on to as God's people, that he is the source of our strength. And I think it's worth noting and pausing to ask this question. Who is the source of your strength? If you're taking notes, we're going to be asking three questions in our conversation this morning, and this is the first one. Who is the source of your strength? If you haven't figured that out yet, you better decide real quickly, because if, who, if the source of your strength is who you're sitting next to, you will be disappointed at times. If the source of your strength is the number in your bank account, something will hit your life that you can't buy your way out of. To make God the source of our strength means, yes, that we depend on him, but it also means that we reject every other source as primary. Because like we said, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't claim that God is the source of your strength and then look for strength everywhere else. He says it in the Psalms, I lift my eyes up to the hills where my help, where my strength comes from. My strength comes from the Lord. All of our help, all of our hope, all of our strength comes from him. It's not from the economy, it's not from the politics, it's not from our spouses, and it's not from our finances. It comes from God. 
And I think this is what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 14, where he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Now, it's not that you really hate those things. But your fidelity to those things looks like hate when compared to the love that you have for God. Similarly, it's not that we don't put a level of trust in the government. It's not that we don't need the spouses and the finances for support. We need those things, but we don't rely on them because they're not our source of strength. And I think it's imperative that we remind ourselves of this and that we continue to come back to this reality for this reason. Think to yourself, what did you have for breakfast? What did you have for breakfast yesterday? What did you have for breakfast last week? What did you have for breakfast last month? How about last year? Forgetting what you had for breakfast is not that big a deal. It doesn't really have an implication on how you live life. But forgetting where our source of strength comes from, that has implications on how we see the world, on how we fight our battles. It affects everything. And so a daily reminder, a coming back to the fact that our God is the source of our strength is imperative as we live out our Christian life. Now, there's two parts to verse 6. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. He mentions two different things, a source of strength and a spirit of justice. And at first, when I saw this, I thought he was talking about two different things, source of strength, spirit of justice. But the more that I thought about it, It's actually two functions of the same thing. Another common phrase that we say, it's two sides of the same coin. Now, one of my favorite moments of justice is within the film A Few Good Men. Tom Cruise is playing a military lawyer who's defending two Marines in the pursuit of justice. And within the film, he says to the antagonist, Jack Nicholson, I want the truth. To which Nicholson famously replies, You can't handle the truth. And there was such force, there was such power, there's such integrity behind those words because Cruz is trying to get justice served. And if justice is to be served, there's a standard that must be met for truth. So when God says here that he will be a spirit of justice, he's talking about standards. He will decide what is right and wrong. He will set the standard. The same God who is the source of our strength says that he is also to be the source of our standards. And like we said, these two are connected. So if they're connected, now we have to examine something else. The order says that he will be a spirit of justice, then a source of strength. Spirit of justice first, then the source of strength. And here's the question that's been killing me ever since I read this. How can I embrace God's strength if I don't embrace God's standard? How can I call God the source of my strength if I have not made him the source of my standard? This is the have your cake and eat it too part. You can't embrace God's strength if you don't embrace God's standard. And we struggle with this often. I struggle with this often, and I don't even think I've realized it. Because 
God and the world do not have the same perspective on how to live life. God's ideas for your life are not the same as the environment that we find ourselves in. How can I expect God's strength without God's standards? It's like the analogy we said before. How can I expect to be in shape if I don't exercise? How can I have results without effort? How can I have strength without standards? Well, let's pause. We have to ask, what are God's standards? I can think of 10 of them off the top of my head in the book of Exodus. I can think of many things that Jesus said while he was here. I can think of many passages within the New Testament that invite us into a right way of living. But say you just needed one. Say you wanted to start applying God's standards. Let's, let's just look at one thing. Micah 6, verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. I feel if we adopted those three things, some of us would live radically different lives. And before we continue, I've said the word standard a couple times. We need God's standard. We need to embrace God's standard. I just want to clarify, I'm not saying we need God's rules. Rules are something we follow, something that we live up to so that something beneficial will happen to us. That's not standards. Standards are something we live out of because of the position we're in. I'm not talking about keeping God's standards to earn his love. I'm talking about living right because he does love us. It's not living up to a standard, it's living out of the standard. You see, rules look to performance, as the assurance of God's love. But standards look to God's love and then lives out of that love. It's not something that God wants from me. It's something he wants for me. He's given me a standard. He calls me his child. And to live beneath that standard is to live like Eve and to speak to something I should be stepping on. Adam and Eve are great examples here. Could you imagine that they're in the garden and God gives them free reign? Do whatever you'd like, just don't eat of that tree. Have dominion over the animals, but don't eat of that tree. Now, could you imagine that now they start a dialogue with the serpent, they eat of the fruit, and then they look to God and go, this is so difficult, give me strength. That would be ridiculous because they knew his standard. And the problem is we don't live out of God's standards, but we still ask for God's strength. Question number one was, who is the source of your strength? Now we've got to ask question number two. Who set your standards? Who set your standards? Who sits on the seat that decides right and wrong in your life? Who decides what's just and unjust? Who decides what's moral and immoral? I need God to sit in that seat because I don't trust myself that much. But if I've left that seat open and allow culture to tell me what's right and wrong, how can I look to culture for my standard but look to God for strength? How can I look to the world to tell me how to live and then look to God to give me strength for a standard that wasn't his? And I think some of the reason that we do this is because we forget who we are. 
First, we need a reminder of, of the fact that God is the source of our strength. Now we need a reminder of who we are. 1 Peter chapter 2 says in verse 9, but you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And we got to ask that question. Who set your standards? I mean, have we even thought about that or, or did we just inherit it? Because there are standards that get inherited through our families. There are generations of good habits and bad habits, good standards and bad standards. I'll give you an example. Abraham is the father of the children of Israel. He's the first one. He's the one that God calls out and says, you're going to start this new thing that I have. Abraham struggled with lying twice. He lies the exact same lie about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife. He passes that on to Isaac. Isaac lies the exact same way to Abimelech about Rebekah. She's my sister. Isaac passes that lying on to Jacob. Jacob lies about getting the, uh, the inheritance. Jacob's sons lie to Jacob about what they did with Joseph, selling him into slavery. But the lying stops with Joseph. You see, it's an inherited family standard, but it stopped with Joseph. Joseph did not lie. Joseph did not deceive. He did not bend the truth. And what, what happened with that is it ended him in prison. He ends up in jail because he didn't lie. But it actually worked out for good because now he's second in command of all of Egypt. He breaks the family cycle. And maybe you have an inherited family cycle, a bad standard. Maybe something just came to mind. But take heart in the fact that it can break with you. You can be the one that breaks that bad family standard. And one of the, one of the greatest tools that I've personally encountered and I've seen work in a lot of other people's lives in breaking bad family standards is therapy. Working through these bad standards that that don't come from God. But like we said, it could break with you, and the place where it breaks, the place where it stops is where? It's at the gate. The place to beat it is at the gate before it even enters in, before we entertain it, before we negotiate with it. The place to stop is at the gate. And this is what Isaiah is saying, that we can turn back the battle at the gate. Not when it's near the end, not when it's mid-war, before it even starts. And like we said, these are two functions of the same spirit. This is where the strength comes from. The strength comes from the standard. You see, I don't have to waste time on things that I have a standard for. I don't have to negotiate between the gates. I have a standard. I don't have to wonder if abortion is right or wrong because the standard that I have from God says do not murder. I don't need to consider if I should connect with my gay and transgender friends because the standard that I have from God says love your neighbor as yourself. Imagine that these issues and these questions that we find ourselves in as Christians are battles coming to our gate. They come to the outer gate and they want to come into the inner gate where we negotiate with them. 
Now hear me, some things need to be negotiated, some things need to be worked out, but some things don't if we have a standard. As Christians, I think we get hung up battling all these these questions. We get so confused because we haven't applied the standard, and then we look to God and say, give me strength. It's funny, we sing it all the time, the battle belongs to the Lord, but we stress like it's ours. The battle belongs to the Lord, but we worry like it's ours. We waste time worrying and stressing when we could be worshiping. You see, these battles already have an outcome if we have a standard. He will be a spirit of justice to the one who sits in judgment, a source of strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Imagine it like this. How many of you have ever played with Legos? I loved Legos. I had a ton of Legos growing up. But the pure joy of playing with Legos came when I got a box set. Box set was the best. Something like a Star Wars Death Star or something like that. Thousand pieces. Like that was the ultimate. And I'd always say the same thing. I don't need the instructions. I've got this. I've done this before. I can handle this. And I'd, I'd often say things like, oh, well, I wonder why they put that piece there. That doesn't match up to the idea that I had in my head. Oh, well, I got this. I've done this before. And after an hour of struggle, disappointment, and anger, I'd have to take the whole thing apart and start over. This time with the instructions. And then 20 minutes later, I was done. Had I started with the standard, I would have saved my strength. I wouldn't have wasted time. I wouldn't have wasted energy if I had said, this came from the designer. It was designed with me in mind. I'll follow it. The strength we're told God will provide comes from the standard he also provides. So now we don't even have to waste time trying to construct our own standard. We're literally saving our own energy. And why does he give us a standard? We, we've been talking about this. Why? Why does he give us a standard? Is it to show his dominion about how strong he is and how we don't have any free will? Is it to make our lives miserable? No, it's so that we can have our cake and eat it too. The other day, Nora and I were outside. We're, we're uh, smoothing out dirt patches in the back. And Nora takes her dirt time very seriously. So she's out there with her shovel and she's got this look on her face and she's just ready to go. And as I'm smoothing things out, I'm finding two things. I'm finding rocks, and I'm finding glass. So as she's digging, she, she all of a sudden stops, and she says, I'm going to take my shoes off. And so she does. And what I said to her was, sweetheart, you can take your socks off, but your shoes you need to keep on so that you can keep having fun. Now, she could have looked at me and said, Dad, stop giving me so many rules. She could have said, Dad, why are you constantly giving me instruction? I know better. That's not what she did. She looked at me, and she knew what I was trying to do was to keep her safe, but also to allow her to do what she wanted. And so she did. She put her, her shoes back on and stamped all over my perfectly smooth dirt patch. <laughs> but she aligned with my standard. And we, too, can align with God's standard, a God who loves us, a God who knows the end from the beginning, a God who calls us out of darkness and calls us his child. And it's not 
to live up to rules and regulations. It's so that we can live out of a high calling. You see, from that standard comes strength that is not so easily intimidated by the confusion of this world. I think we live confused sometimes as Christians because we want the strength, but we don't want the standard. We want the resurrection without the crucifixion. We don't want to put anything to death, but we want new life. We want freedom, but we don't embrace forgiveness. We want peace, but we don't control our meditation. You know, we want to live peaceful and tranquil lives, but we don't regulate what we allow into our minds. And this is where the gate comes in. We let it in. We try to negotiate it when some battle should be turned back. Because how can I be free from what I let walk right through my front door? I need a standard. We are the church. We are the children of God. And we're in this gate. And we have to stop some things at the source drawing a line in the sand, and raising the standard so as to receive God's strength. The last of the three questions, the first was, who is the source of your strength? The second was, I forgot, who set my standards? And the last is this, what battles do I need to turn back at the gate? I think for us at TRBC, a couple come to mind, a couple battles that we need to turn back at the gate. We're going to turn back the battle of religion at the gate because we don't have a religion. We have a relationship. Let's turn back that battle. We're going to turn back the battle of bitterness, and we're going to walk in forgiveness in our lives. We're going to model equality, not only in our genders, but also in the color of our skin. That's our standard. Because it's Father's Day, men, we're not going to emotionally abuse we're not going to spiritually abuse, and we're not going to verbally abuse our wives and call it leadership. We have a standard. We're going to engage in our children's lives physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That's our standard. Greed, gluttony, gossip, they don't have a place in our gate. We're turning them back. Because we have a high calling and therefore we will not live with low standards. So as we wrap up, just those three questions one more time. Number one, who is the source of your strength? Have we given the role of God and God alone to our finances, to our family, to our politics, to our culture? We need to come back to a daily reminder that the Lord is the source of our strength. Number two, who sets your standards? Who defines for you what it is to be a man? Who defines for you what it means to be a woman of God? Who defines for you what it means to pursue God? What lens do you use to view the world and its brokenness? Because any other standard other than God is going to lead to confusion. It's going to lead to pain. It's going to lead to disappointment because, again, how can we embrace God's strength if we don't embrace his standard? And the last question, where do I need to turn back the battle at the gate? What have I allowed in for negotiation that I should have already turned back? What have I entertained? And if I'm honest, what have I lost time on? Because I'm trying to negotiate with something that God is very clear on. 
You see, God invites us into living a life that's filled with vibrancy and life and color. And it's not so that he can suppress our Christian walk, it's so that he can enhance it, so that he can strengthen it. And when we embrace God's standards, we recognize that he alone is our source of strength so that we can literally have our cake and eat it too. Let's close in prayer. Holy Spirit, we invite you to continue to chip away at our preconceived thoughts and notions this morning, starting with myself. Help us to recognize that our strength comes from you and that our strength comes from embracing the standard of living that you have set before us. Help us to walk in truth but also in freedom as we walk through our journeys of faith. And we thank you for being our Father. In your name, amen.